0: I think that the economics profession gets it wrong in terms of thinking about human motivation and about what the factors are that lead to the preservation of sharp economic differences between racial and ethnic groups.
1: Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. A bit of housekeeping before we begin. We are looking for an EP of audio at Vox. This will be somebody who is driving the future of Vox's audio programs, um, but is in particular working very closely with me on this show to try to improve it, to try to figure out where it should go. Um, Of course, it'd be great to have somebody who is already uh, a a fan of the show and has a sense of what it is and and, and thus what it can be. If that sounds like you, if you've got the experience for that job and and the hunger for it, go to VoxMedia.com. There's a careers tab there and the EP of audio job will be found there. Again, that is VoxMedia.com. Check out the careers job and just go to the EP of Vox Audio. Um, My guest today to go to the actual show rather than the uh, meta show, is Sandy Darity, who is an economist at Duke University and a, a really, really brilliant guy. You might have heard recently that Cory Booker brought out this big plan for baby bonds that would give kids, um, poor kids, up to $50,000 uh, by the time they turned 18 that they could use for wealth-building reasons. It's an effort to, to close the racial wealth gap. That idea, the baby bonds idea, um, Sandy Darity uh, is one of the, the, the real People who have been working on that in the background for a long time now. And he's been working on it along with other colleagues under the broader umbrella of this thing called stratification economics, which is a a way of thinking about economics not through individuals as being these rational economic actors, but through groups and the ways groups might interact with each other and the ways um, that group positions and relative positions change our economic thinking. It's a really fascinating way of thinking about the world, really fascinating way of thinking about inequality and, in particular, Uh, between group inequality in our world, and this was a very fascinating conversation on it. Um, So here, without further ado, is Sandy Darity. Professor Darity, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's begin with stratification economics. Uh, What makes it different than what people normally think of as economics? I think traditional economics focuses
0: on people's absolute position or some measure of their absolute well-being while stratification economics focuses on their comparative or relative position rather than their absolute position. And it places a heavy emphasis on who are the reference groups with whom they are making comparisons. So the basic idea is uh, people feel better about themselves and about their world if they think that they are better off in comparison to others in a relevant comparison group. Uh, And this is an approach to thinking about human well-being and human happiness that emerges out of the work of the idiosyncratic economist Thorsten Veblen, who wrote about these kinds of ideas at the beginning of the previous
1: century. So there's a, a line, I think I associate with Paul Krugman, but I'm not a thousand percent sure he said it, that the problem with the economics is it doesn't know how to model power. And and when I read stratification economics and, and read your work on it, what it, it seems to me you're saying is that economics doesn't know how to model status and how much status drives our decision-making and even our economic decision-making. Is that is that a reasonable way to put it? I think that's a fair way to put it, but
0: I want to emphasize that the status position is linked closely to your material position. So it's not just uh, something that is psychic in a raw sense. Uh, It is something that's actually substantive. So that I don't want to divorce the emphasis on status
1: away from relative material advantage. So so give me an example of this. Give give me something specific and how one would look at it through a traditional economic lens and how one might look at it through this lens.
0: So I think there's been a lot of debate over the most recent presidential election where people are saying that the Trump supporters were expressing economic anxiety. Others are saying that they are white supremacists. I think that traditional economics cannot sort between those two types of distinctions. And interestingly enough, stratification economics actually suggests that it's both of those things in combination if you start thinking about relative position anxiety. So here's the gist of it. Uh, The central question with stratification economics is who are you making a comparison against? And I think the answer that emerges from stratification economics is that individuals have a sense of which social groups they belong to and value, and they have a sense of who the outgroups are. So they make a comparison between their group's position relative to the outgroup, but then they also make comparisons about their own individual position vis-a-vis folks within their social group. And so there, there are two levels of comparison. And there are two levels of comparison that influence people's sense of well-being. So folks feel like they're better off if their group is doing better than the group that they see as the outsiders. They also feel better off if they are doing better relative to other members of their own group. I think both of those things – Combine in the context of the most recent, uh, the most recent election where the economic anxiety dimension is probably most closely related to how individuals saw themselves doing relative to others within their reference group. But there's a white supremacist dimension that was associated with
1: concerns over how whites were doing collectively relative to blacks. So I've been very influenced on this by the work of a political scientist out at UCI named Michael Tesler. And he's got a forthcoming book coming out with Lynn Vavrek and John Sides called Identity Crisis. And what they show in that book is that the way we talked about the economic anxiety, racial resentment link was often backwards. That we had this story that when people were economically anxious, it activated racial resentment. It activated their tendency to, to scapegoat other groups. But what they found is in some ways the reverse. That when people were racially resentful, It activated their economic anxiety. If you you were a white person who had a high level of of resentment towards African-Americans, seeing Barack Obama – be president made you feel worse about the economy. You thought the unemployment rate was worse than it actually was. You thought things were going uh, economically in a worse direction than they actually were. And I think it's sort of proven out by now after the election despite the fact that the economy has really been on the same trend line. That group, that most racially resentful group has gone from the least economically optimistic to being the most economically optimistic. So does that fit the theory?
0: Uh, I think that fits the theory uh, quite well. I think it's very, very consistent uh, with the theory.
1: So why is this economics? I think I'm going to have people listening to this and say, it just sounds like you're making a sociology argument or, or a political science argument. You're just well, making an argument I, you know, I about always get status. Confused.
0: I, I always get, get accused of, of not being a conventional economist. And sometimes some economists say I'm not an economist. Uh, but I think the problem is really with conventional economics. That is to say, economics has carved out an approach to looking at the world which doesn't consistently work. And in fact, frequently it doesn't. You know, another example that's a little bit distant from the subject that we're talking about is the fact that I think that the economics profession broadly could not explain why the Great Recession took place. And so, that suggests to me that there's something wrong with the way in which people are doing economics. And stratification economics is proposing an alternative that
1: offers a general theory of differences between social groups. When I read into this discipline – because I think it's really interesting and I think it's really useful. One of the things I see is that there's a real contest over how do we think about what is a rational decision for people to make. And that we have a tendency in in the economics profession particularly but also I think politics – to look at uh, rational decision-making in a very narrowly materialistic sense, that if, you know, you would get more money or more of some kind of material utility from doing X, then you should do X. And if you're not doing X, you're more or less irrational. Whereas going back way, way, way back and decades and decades and decades of social science, we see people giving up material well-being for different kinds of status rewards, that people care much more about relative well-being and so might even be willing to take you know a smaller pie as long as they're getting more of it than their brother-in-law is and i guess I'd, I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about that idea of rationality and where a lens like this can help make sense of decisions that seem to professional to traditional economists as almost irrational as, as against self-interest how maybe it changes the idea of what self-interest is
0: so i think a lot of this has to do with the question of whether or not your assessment of your relative position within your group is primarily collaborative or competitive. And I think that that's circumstance-driven to to a large degree. Uh, Suppose you believe that an improved collaborative relationship within your group, in which you give up something for the betterment of the group, significantly improves the group's position vis-a-vis a a group that is perceived as a rival. Then then I think you would very much go ahead with uh, perhaps giving up something. Can you give me an example of that? I think an example of it would be a situation in which there's a social group that is willing to pay higher taxes because it gives them certain kinds of resources that improves their position. So, uh, we might even think that there are circumstances in which there's a social group, and I think that we have a historical example of this that accepts a shift to uh, from a regressive tax system to a progressive tax system. And I think in the United States, in the Eisenhower years, if I'm correct about this, the marginal tax rates on the folks in the upper end of the tax bracket were approaching 90%. I'm not going to argue that folks at the upper end of the tax bracket were entirely happy with that, but there was a point in which – There was a perception that we might have to make these kinds of adjustments to keep the system in place, particularly in the 1930s when there was a a sentiment or a recognition on the part of uh, the corporate interests in this country that there might actually be a real chance that socialism would be implemented in the United States.
1: And so where does this kind of focus on on status group identity take us forward? When you're looking at the kinds of debates we're having now, where do you think that the economics profession is getting it wrong by not looking as much at relative position? I think that the economics
0: profession gets it wrong in terms of thinking about human motivation and about what the factors are that lead to the preservation of sharp economic differences between racial and ethnic groups.
1: One of the thing within that that I've been surprised not to hear you talk more about is you've been describing this as a, a theory of individual motivation. But in some of the the writings I've read from this from from you and others One of the things that struck me as very interesting about it is it takes groups as a more fundamental unit of economic analysis than traditionally. So I feel like one way somebody could hear this discussion is that it's really about how do I feel versus my neighbor? And then there's another way I've at least seen it portrayed that it's really about understanding that, you know, we all belong to a lot of groups simultaneously. We're Californians, we're Republicans, we're Hispanics, whatever it might be, and that this is a branch of economics trying also to understand how to begin to model the way the the rise and falls of those groups um, drive individual behavior. Um, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that or if that's a misconception to, to have it corrected. Uh, It's not a misconception, and you actually said it better than I could. I
0: will want to add one proviso before I go further, though, which is, yes, we belong to multiple groups, but all groups that we belong to are not equally salient in terms of affecting the decisions that we make. That is to say all group identities are not equal. And so I think it's really important in the context of researchers who are working within the stratification economics framework – to pay careful attention to which identities are the ones that are most influential, not only in terms of the individual's uh, perception of the world, but also in terms of what types of actions their social group takes. So I started in a way with a more analysis of what individuals' attachments are, but that's to animate or motivate a better sense of how groups might operate under those circumstances. And so what we're really concerned with in stratification economics is the interplay between the groups, uh, circumstances in which the groups behave in a rivalrous fashion, how do groups situate themselves to be dominating versus being subordinated. Those are all group-level emphases that emerge out of stratification economics. But uh, I wanted to start with how individuals might affiliate themselves and consequently how they might perceive their own sense of being better off or worse off. But ultimately, in stratification economics, it's the group that is behaving rationally in an environment in which its position is treated as something that's competitive.
1: I can imagine somebody listening to this and saying, oh my god, we already have identity politics, right? everybody splitting themselves into groups and and acting politically based on, on that foundation, do we really need identity economics as well? What do you say to them?
0: So my answer is uh, yes, we do have identity politics and we have identity politics because that's how things actually are. I think we'd be intellectually dishonest – to try to craft a different theory of the world that's inconsistent with it just because it doesn't feel good. My work as a scholar is not predicated on making people feel better about themselves. It's about trying to have the most accurate understanding of how the world works. B? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds in envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is... Who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the Internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the Internet? And if so, how? So let's talk a little bit about how the world has worked. One of the things I wanted to discuss with you is the racial wealth gap. Let me begin with a big question. When somebody asks you, why do we have racial wealth gap? What does a racial wealth gap represent? What's your answer?
0: Uh, my answer is the reason we have a racial wealth gap is because blacks in the United States have been deprived of the capacity to accumulate sufficient resources to transfer to subsequent generations. And the beginning of that process is, is located with the failure of the United States to to meet the promise of the provision of 40 acres and a mule to the formerly enslaved.
1: Somebody listening, I think, would say the key word in that answer was deprived, that they were deprived of it. Yes. And I think the the counter argument you hear on this a lot is, yes, that may have been true in the past. Certainly, nobody's defending slavery or the post-Reconstruction terror regime. But look, like, you know, we had the Civil Rights Act. We had Martin Luther King. At this point, nobody's depriving anybody of anything. And so if the wealth gap is in closing, that is a reflection of pathologies within the African-American community.
0: Yeah, that's a very popular argument. But the point of identifying an origin position for these types of inequalities with the failure to provide 40 acres and a mule is to argue that there's a cumulative effect that's associated with wealth – which is not quite the same as uh, the conditions that determine people's income levels. And I think that folks who uh, make these claims about pathological behavior are not thinking about how uniquely wealth is determined as opposed to income. And the primary determinant of wealth, I think, from the research that I've done and from the work that uh, people like Alexandra Kellewald and uh, Robert Pfeffer do – In that work, it's fairly clear that the primary factor that determines an individual's level of wealth or a household's level of wealth or a family's level of wealth is the wealth that they have received in some shape or form from older generations. So it's the intergenerational transmission mechanism that's really critical. And that doesn't operate in the same way on income. But with respect to wealth, that's the powerful determinant. And so if you start out with an earlier generation that is deprived of wealth, it eliminates their capacity to pass it on to the next generation, and this is a cumulative process. But I'd also like to add that there are a number of policies that were implemented by the U.S. government well into the 20th century that had an adverse effect on black wealth accumulation and a positive effect on white wealth accumulation. So one of these was the GI Bill in the aftermath of World War II, which was one of the most important policy measures that's ever been taken in this country to promote social mobility. But it disproportionately promoted social mobility for whites, both in terms of providing folks who came from families that never had had college education, A first-generation opportunity for that, but also in terms of subsidizing people's access to home purchases. And this was disproportionately beneficial to white Americans because of the way in which the program was administered. And so that's one policy. The second is the huge array of federal home loan subsidy projects that were undertaken after World War II, again, administered in such a way that they disproportionately benefited whites in terms of their capacity to build wealth. And then, of course, there's the long, long history of residential segregation, the use of redlining by credit institutions that, again, excluded blacks from the opportunity to acquire additional wealth through effective home ownership. And so there are policies that have taken place long after the failure to provide 40 acres and a mule that reinforce these
1: kinds of disparities. So uh, I've been... Doing a lot of work in this space over the past year, we have a Netflix show and we did an episode on the racial wealth gap. And and so I spent a lot of time reading your work and others about this. And one of the things that really struck me about the literature here is where we draw some of the distinctions between different kinds of inheritance. So on the one hand, there's a question of inherited wealth directly, right? So we say, okay, X amount of the wealth we have is just something that our parents or some other family member someone gave us, Um, a house that got passed down during the generations, uh, a trust fund if you're rich. You know, there are all kinds of things like this, a car. And then there are things that are investments in our human capital that might lead or or affect wealth creation Um, from the very obvious like – your parents were able to pay for you to go to school so you didn't rack up a lot of student debt in college to um, your parents had good jobs and that changed the community that you were able to grow up in or it changed the way people talked about things around the house or you know, it, it had a, a lot of these soft questions. And then there's this cut people want to make over then to culture. As if it operates in some other sphere from all this when it seems to me that it's quite affected by all this, that the culture is continuous with some of these things that we're talking about and the opportunities we're able to give our children and where we're able to live and whether or not we're able to be in a good school district and and all this stuff. And on the other hand, you can take this analysis so far that you've removed any space for humans to determine their own life path, that you've created an analysis where it seems like nobody can do anything uh, about their path. But clearly that's not true either. So I'm curious how you think about this tangle here because it's a part I struggle with, how you think about this tangle of like on the one hand, a lot is determined intergenerationally, not everything. Um, and also some of the things that we understand is not intergenerational probably are and I know that's a big question but it, it's partially just to create a a space for us to to ask a lot in that space. Yeah, that's a fascinating question <laughs> and it it is a big one.
0: I'll probably stumble my way into responding to this one but let uh, me be
1: a better interviewer here and start with a more distinct question within there. Yeah. This distinction, when you say wealth is heavily intergenerationally driven, how do you distinguish between what is passed down and what is reliant on human effort? How how do we even think about the question of where we make the cut on that?
0: Oh, okay. So there always are individuals who in some sense have, I guess, almost miraculous outcomes given their starting point. But – in the kind of research that we've been doing on the racial wealth gap we haven't focused on the folks who are the outliers uh because we don't think that their experiences are representative nor do we think that their experiences can be replicated although there is a large industry out there of uh trying to teach people how to be millionaires but and now we're all millionaires so well, and I was going to say most people who become – well, I guess now now the standard is being a billionaire. But most people who become super rich don't become super rich because they have accomplished this without having any significant amount of initial resources to start with. That's the very rare case. And that's the case that people can't readily replicate. There's something extraordinary about some folks. There may be extraordinary serendipity in their experiences that makes that possible. But if we look at the the typical individual, the typical individual's wealth position is going to be largely shaped by the wealth position of their parents and their grandparents. And I think that's the gist of the research that Alexandra Killawald has done. I mean, I think that's what she's shown very, very powerfully. So it's not to say that that people's outcomes are absolutely determined by their family's resources or their relatives' resources. But for most people, that is the primary factor that dictates their subsequent life outcomes.
1: Can you tell me more about the research of, of Alexandra Kilowatt? You've mentioned it a couple times.
0: Yeah, so uh, she and her co-authors have done a series of papers where they actually look systematically at the relationship between an individual's wealth outcome and the wealth, uh, the wealth that was held by their parents and their grandparents. And they find that there's even an effect from grandparents' wealth after you take into account parental wealth, which presumably also was affected by grandparental wealth.
1: So that is suggesting that whatever is being passed down is pretty powerful and is not purely financial.
0: It's not purely a monetary amount of inheritance funds. It is going to include things like in vivo transfers. These are transfers that take place while the donor is still living across generational lines, frequently things that we don't even uh, reflect on as being intergenerational transfers. These are gifts like your parents helping you make the down payment on a mortgage. These are gifts, like your parents providing you with a zero-interest loan to try to conduct some sort of initiative that you might want to undertake, like beginning a business. So that's a monetary transfer, but it's not an inheritance. And then I would add, and I think maybe this is just as important, coming from a family that is more economically secure gives uh, a young person a greater sense of security themselves, and a wider sense of the potential opportunities that they might have out there in the world in terms of the activities that they pursue, the career that they might pursue.
1: So something you'll hear at about this point in the conversation is, well, what about some of these other immigrant communities um, that have built wealth more rapidly? You'll hear about there had been discrimination against the Irish, but, you know, now one doesn't hear about a huge racial wealth gap with the Irish. Uh, you know, there are a number of Asian American communities that have built wealth quite effectively. You know, some of these people don't even well, have I, I'm not here. sure that there's yeah.
0: not a, a significant wealth gap between the Irish and, uh, and non-Irish uh, That's a white fair point. Americans. I'm, I'm not certain about that. We don't have any, any studies that look systematically at wealth differences across uh, – across ethnic lines among whites. Okay, so I just don't know. Now, people might say that the Irish are relatively well off in terms of income, but I certainly don't know about what the uh, the relative position is for Irish whites, particularly Irish Catholics versus Irish Protestants, because their economic positions
1: seem to be somewhat different. To phrase the question then a little bit differently, there there is a, an objection that is often raised, which is that there are a number of immigrant communities that have come here or have been here for a bit who face their own kinds of usually lesser but but nevertheless real discrimination and that seem to have been successful in wealth accumulation. And, And the question it raises is that if this is all about intergenerational transfer, how is that possible?
0: So I've developed a hypothesis that I've labeled the lateral mobility hypothesis. And the argument here is that in general, the outcomes for immigrant communities to the United States involve replication of the relative position that their community held in their country of origin. So if we observe a specific immigrant community that's extremely affluent, it is probably an immigrant community that came from comparative affluence in their country of origin. And in fact, uh, if we think about, say, immigrants from the African continent to the United States, they are disproportionately highly educated in comparison with the general American population and certainly in comparison with the populations from the countries of origin. And so we have to look very carefully at what types of resources and characteristics immigrant communities have when they enter into the United States, because that has a tremendous effect on what occurs subsequently. And so it actually is consistent with an argument that there are profound intergenerational transfers that affect subsequent generations' outcomes. It applies to immigrant communities as well, but I think we have not paid very careful attention to the characteristics and resources that those communities have upon entry into the United
1: States. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that.
0: Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there is no way that that Israel should be able to participate pro-palestinian
1: protesters are taking to the swedish streets more than a thousand swedish artists including robin have called for an israel ban some european politicians are joining them charlie harding from switched on pop joins us this week on today explained to help us figure out if europe can sing its way out of this situation So you wrote a a paper along with uh, Derek Hamilton and and some others called – I'm going to forget the name. uh, Umbrellas Don't Make It Rain, I believe it is. Right, right. And you went through there uh, a lot of data about how educational attainment, housing attainment, work changes or more to the point doesn't really change the wealth gap. And I want to go through some of what you found because it's quite striking and I'd like to understand it better. So quoting here from the paper, you write – Black families whose heads graduated from college have about 33 percent less wealth than white families whose heads dropped out of high school. The poorest white families, those in the bottom quintile of the income distribution, have slightly more wealth than black families in the middle quintiles of the income distribution. So that's suggesting that education is not – nearly powerful enough to close the wealth gap. And my question there is why? Is that something where we're just looking at – it just needs a lag time and over the course of a generation or two it will? Wealth just takes longer? Or is there something else?
0: No, it's something else. So the question we need to examine is how would education influence wealth? And so I think that the mechanism that most people have in mind is that higher levels of education are associated – with higher earnings, which then in turn are associated with higher levels of total income, and that means that individuals can save more to contribute to wealth accumulation. The difficulty is that this is a view that's predicated on placing a significant role on savings behavior as the source of wealth accumulation. And as I've been arguing throughout our conversation... Actually, the major factor that dictates people's wealth levels is what they can receive from the previous generations. And so that's a very different kind of model from putting the focus on savings behavior. And it's through savings behavior that education would presumably have some sort of an effect on on wealth accumulation. But that overlooks the most important factors influencing wealth accumulation altogether. And so you could have a a white household whose head has a relatively low level of education, but that household has a higher level of wealth than a black household where the head has a much higher level of education, simply because of the intergenerational transmission effects that are
1: racially tilted. This is one of those arguments though that I do want to interrogate because I think people will hear it and it's confusing. I mean, my grandmother, as an example, grew up quite poor and by the end of her life was reasonably wealthy. And, and that was – it was clearly savings behavior that, that had done that. Um, it was clear – I mean she worked incredibly hard. She built businesses. She, she had a, a store. But she saved and, and that's how she made money and invested and, and so on. So what does it mean to say that increasing income so that you can change your savings behavior is not how wealth is built? At some point in the past, it has to be how at least some amount of this wealth was built.
0: Some amount, yeah. But if we think about people who have larger fortunes, that's primarily due to uh, some behavior that frequently was less than legal. If we think about the generation that made the transition from uh, youth to adulthood during the course of World War II, particularly those who went to serve in the military, Their significant boost in wealth was associated with the uh, resources that were provided by the GI Bill, not deliberate and personal acts of savings. So if anything, I would say that your grandmother probably falls into that category of individuals who I would identify as being extraordinary and exceptional. I don't think that that's a typical kind of route towards wealth accumulation, certainly not in terms of the experiences of – of the generation that had the greatest change in social mobility uh, at the middle of the 20th century.
1: But so when we think about that generation, when we think about the GI Bill and the housing bills and and, and so on, isn't the mechanism that they ultimately work through – I mean there is a grant happening at some point there, right? The GI Bill helps people go to college or, or, or the FHA helps guarantee a mortgage. I mean somewhere downstream for that to end up in their bank account the way we're talking about, doesn't that become savings behavior? Well, actually, there's a distinction that should be made between passive and active savings.
0: So by that distinction, I mean that passive savings is a situation in which your wealth accumulates simply because of appreciation of the the assets that you hold. And so if, for example, you were able to purchase a home in 1955 – in a, in quotes, desirable neighborhood, uh, that home was likely to appreciate in value without you doing anything to it. And so there's an equity gain that you achieve and that's what I would refer to as passive savings. The other type of savings that I think most people have in mind is what we can refer to as active savings, which is a, uh, a situation in which a person makes a conscious attempt to set aside a portion of the income that they've earned in a given year. As far back as the 1950s, the uh, Nobel laureate economist Simon Kuznets said, it's really only about 10% of any nation's population that does any significant amount of savings because everybody else's incomes are too low for them to do much in that way. So, I think we need to emphasize passive savings over active savings in the ways in which we think about the process of wealth accumulation.
1: That's an interesting point. Um, And so, when you create that distinction, how much is there a linkage between the two? So, on the one hand, I very much take the point you're making that if you bought a house in 1972 in a, a quote unquote desirable neighborhood, you could see a huge amount of appreciation. Such that somebody with the exact same savings behavior as you, who was locked out of that neighborhood and was in a less desirable neighborhood, did not build nearly as much wealth. And so, like there, we have a clear, uh, a clear question. And, but you and know, they, for people, they who, might have lost the home in the midst of the uh, Great Recession. But you know, presumably there's some amount of. Active savings becoming passive savings and the question is, are you able to get – I mean there has been so much growth in America that it seems to me a huge amount of the wealth question. Is it during these periods of growth, were you one of the people who had enough saved up in an asset or were able to invest in inequities or whatever such that you could participate in that growth? versus were were you not, and that over time the advantages of having been on that ride go up and up and up, and the disadvantages of having not been on that ride are are more and more profound. But you know, getting on that ride in the first place does seem to be at least a little bit, I mean, savings oriented. The wealth had to come from somewhere here and, and somebody had to sock it away at some point.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think we could actually flip what you said and say that the passive savings might facilitate active savings. Sure. In, in yeah, far as uh you you could put away more of a given amount of income depending upon the the greater level of your wealth in the first place but you know the other thing that i'll say which i think is really critical in your comment is that you made the observation that that folks have to have some kind of a start to actually begin this process of trying to build additional wealth And I think that that's the key point, that we have to look carefully at the endowment that a young adult has as a basis for further wealth accumulation or further growth in wealth. And if that endowment doesn't exist or if it's negligible, then they're at a really sharp disadvantage. And I think that there are dramatic racial differences in the magnitudes of those endowments that are available to young adults
1: as they enter into their mature years in life. I want to quote some numbers you have in the paper on this because I think they're they're quite profound. So you write... The median wealth for an upper-middle-class white family, $136,390, is more than triple the $36,430 median wealth for upper-middle-class black families. So there's an absolute difference there of $100,000. And so one of the things that is striking to me about wealth is the way it acts as a a cushion – That, you know, that white family that has the money to manage a bad time where somebody loses their job or gets sick or, you know, their kid is born with disabilities or whatever it might be versus the upper middle class African-American family that has done all the same things, maybe even worked harder to get to that same rung on the ladder. But if a couple shocks happen, if somebody gets sick for a while or, you know, the company has to close down, all of a sudden, if you don't have that buffer, you can fall back down the rungs of the economic ladder a whole lot more quickly.
0: Yeah, and I think we have uh, a host of studies, including a recent one that's actually focused on income rather than wealth. But uh, we have a host of studies that demonstrate that downward mobility across generations is much, much greater for blacks than it is for whites. And income downward mobility in particular, I think, is explained in large part by differences in wealth.
1: Let's talk a little bit about solutions here. To begin with, where do you fall in the debate of or whether we should have race-based or class-based solutions to these questions? I think we should have both. I
0: think we we should have universal programs to try to support everyone that provide everyone with some resource, but we differentiate the amount based on their class position. And we should also have a race-specific program of reparations if we want to get at the fundamental question
1: of racial wealth differences in the United States. And when you think about how to do these, uh, I want to talk first at the very least about the baby bonds proposal. Which group do you see that fitting into? So the baby bonds proposal I see as a universal program
0: that has class-differentiated amounts of resources that are given to each young person. You know, strictly speaking, it's not a bond. The premise here is that we would be giving every American child a trust fund that they could access upon young adulthood. And, uh, and the amount of the trust would depend upon the wealth position of their, their family. So the higher the wealth position of their family, the lower the amount of the trust. The lower the wealth position of their family, the higher the amount of the trust. And so this would be graduated. But every, every young American would receive some amount of money in the way of an endowment from the federal government.
1: And, as I understand the proposal, um these are pretty significant in numbers so you you talk here about an average account of twenty thousand dollars with um that going up to sixty thousand for children from the most economically disadvantaged families yes and I, I was surprised when I saw that the cost of that would only be about eighty billion dollars a year i mean i don 't want to say that 's not a lot, but you know, let's say roughly that's a trillion dollars over 10 years with inflation, that's less than, say, the Affordable Care Act.
0: Uh, I think it's less than 3% of the existing federal budget.
1: And even if you went to
0: a larger mean estimate like uh, $25,000, given an estimated 4 million new babies in the United States each year, uh, then the annual cost of the program would be $100 billion, which again is not a very significant portion of the overall federal budget. Trevor
1: Burrus Cheaper than the tax cuts we just passed, for instance. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And what could they use? So children would have these uh, funds. They would grow at a guaranteed annual interest rate of 1.5 to 2 percentage points a year. So when they were 18, these would be significant. What could they use them for?
0: So uh, there's an internal debate among those of us who are the proponents of this idea. Uh, Between whether we should be non-paternalistic and have uh, give the young people complete discretion over their use of the funds, or whether we should be paternalistic and specify particular ways in which they can use the funds. So, if we pursued the latter approach, we might say you can use the funds for higher education, or you can use the funds for purchasing a home, or even starting a business. But we might limit their options to those kinds of categories, and at the moment, I'm open-minded about which way one goes on that strategy.
1: One thing I think is interesting about this proposal is we hear a lot of discussion about universal basic incomes, but this is a, a, a version of universal basic wealth. And
0: That's I'm curious right. how you That's think right. it would change Thank society. <laughs> <laughs> now, I love that phrase. That is exactly correct. Uh, so so the, the, the idea here is that not only would we improve a young person's ability to have a more secure economic future and also to transmit a more secure economic future to their own children and descendants, but we also could open up the horizons for them in terms of the kinds of opportunities and options that they now could find as being realistic. So, I think that in some ways is one of the more exciting dimensions of trying to alter the wealth distribution in this way, is that you could really change the vision that young people have for the kinds of prospects that they they can undertake in the future.
1: It's a funny thing to me. We talk so much in this country about a equality of opportunity. And we do so little about it. But even something like this, uh, I think it shows just how much you would have to do to even think about equality of opportunity. Because something like this, it would make a situation much better than it is now for a child turning 18, but the idea that it would equalize society in terms of the opportunity people have to succeed seems a little ridiculous to me. And and given how even something like this feels far from the political mainstream, it seems to me to be a bit of an indictment about how we how we talk about what we're actually doing here in America.
0: Yeah, well, when we talk about equality of opportunity, I think we're frequently not very specific about what we mean. And if equality of opportunity means... Uh, some consistency between what any individual young person can perceive as the possibilities in life, uh, some fairness in what they can perceive as their possibilities in life, then that's a meaning that directs us towards saying we need to
1: have a program of universal basic wealth. And you were discussing a few minutes ago the idea that alongside something like this, you would want to see a race-based reparations program. How how would you structure something like that?
0: So I'm going to uh, deflect this a bit because my wife, Kirsten Mullen, and I have a book that we hope will come out next year in 2019 called From Here to Equality, which uh, should be published by the UNC Press in which we are going to try to do a full-scale assessment of the reparations idea. And we'll have a chapter in which we're going to detail how a reparations program might be undertaken. And if I reveal too much of that now, I will be in big trouble. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Um, all right. Well, then let me ask you the, the question we used to close the podcast, which is What is what are three books you've read over the years that, that have influenced you that you think the audience should read as well? Over the years. Wow. Okay. So, Oliver Cox's Cast, Class, and Race, Eric
0: Williams's Capitalism and Slavery, and W.E.B. Du Bois'
1: Black Reconstruction in America. Those are great recommendations. Professor Sandy Darity, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, thank you to Professor Darity for being here. Uh, his work is really worth following. He's on Twitter. Um, uh, he's, he's he's in all the places you can you can follow it. Uh, you can follow along from home. Thank you, of course, to my producer Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back on Thursday. There's a new show from our friends at TED we think you're going to enjoy. It's called The TED Interview, and it's hosted by Chris Anderson, Head of TED, which is a great job title. In each episode, they dive deeper into the ideas of the most compelling TED speakers. Season one features a far-ranging lineup, including writer Elizabeth Gilbert on discovering your most creative self, David Deutsch on why knowledge is humanity's superpower, Robert Steinberg on disrupting America's cash bail system, and much more. You can check it out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.